music critic Tom Brehan has one of those ideas I wish I'd thought of. He decided to take each and every song that hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and write a column about it in chronological order. The number ones column started in 2018 and it unpacks the history of popular music through the lens of these number one singles and what the history of number ones has meant to music and our culture. Now he's taken 20 of those number ones and put them in a fantastic book, The Number Ones, 20 Chart-Topping Hits That Reveal the History of Pop Music, which is out November 15th. Each song is, as we will talk about, a snapshot of culture at that moment, keeping in mind the chart comes out every week. Some songs stay for just a week, some stay for far longer. The top 10 artists of all time probably won't really surprise you. The Beatles, Madonna, Elton John, Elvis Presley, Mariah Carey, Stevie Wonder, Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, and Rihanna. But some artists who are iconic have never had a number one on the charts. We dig into all of it so much, so, so, so much here in today's episode. Take a listen. Tom, welcome to the show. We are going to have some fun today. So glad you're here. Well, thank you so much for having me. So your column and now your book centers around the Billboard Hot 100, which most people I think know what that is. It's hard to imagine anyone who listens to popular music that hasn't heard of this. But for those that maybe don't know, can you explain to listeners what the Billboard Hot 100 is? Sure, absolutely. The Hot 100 is Billboard's kind of big chart for for singles. It's a it's a weekly thing, and uh, and it 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 says whatever through Billboard's like ever changing methodology, what mm-hmm. the the hundred most popular songs in the country are, you know, any given moment. And it's a uh, the chart has been in existence for sixty four years. It started in nineteen fifty eight. So. And, you know, obviously popular music has changed in a million ways in, in that time. And the sure. chart has two and billboards use different ways to kind of figure that out uh, the, the and, and different processes. And it's been, it's, it's sort of an imperfect metric for, for figuring that out, but it's, it's the best thing that we have. And I like the sort of the sense of continuity that it gives where, uh, you know, you've got songs from 2022 and you've got songs from, from uh, 2022 and you've got songs from 1958. They have nothing to do with each other, but they're still competing on the same kind of playing field. Right. And just to think that this these, this particular chart has been going on since 1958. You and I were just talking before we started recording. You've been writing your column since 2018 and you are just now on 2003 you said you just wrote crazy in love today yes. so yeah, it just went up today wow one of my favorites it was a yeah. that, that, was, that was a fun one that's a good one and like I said that that epitomizes high school for me but you write in the book that more than a thousand songs have hit number one on the hot 100 the Beatles for example have 20 I think they're the leaders in they are they still the are they're they're okay. holding on Uh uh-huh michael jackson has 13 drake has 7 10 if you count songs he's been featured on 
but it might be this, more now. I haven't gone back and recounted since I since yeah, Drake's uh, still at it, right? Time. Obviously, oh, the yeah, yeah, yeah. and Michael Jackson are not, but Drake is still obviously very much recording. But Bob Dylan, James Brown, Bruce Springsteen, for example, they have zero appearances. And of course, they're legend all legendary iconic musicians. So what is the methodology here? How do you make it to number one? Well, there's a billboard since the beginning when it when it first started it was three things it was sales of of records like 45 rpm singles mm -hmm. uh it was radio play which still is part of it and it was jukebox play which they dropped pretty quickly because they didn't have a very good <laughs> way of measuring that uh right. it, although jukeboxes were like you know they were important for a long time that was sure. like a way that people received and 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 consumed this music sure. um but but so it's it's changed a lot since then. But the basic idea is that it's some balance of airplay and sales. And now streaming is is far and away like the most important part of it. Nobody in 1958 could have ever imagined streaming. No way. It, um, so so it's obviously the way we listen to music changes. So the way Billboard figures this chart out has to change. But it's it it ends up being it's 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 done in the moment right like they they figure this thing out from week to week and so it becomes all about timing so um so you you get these weird little pop chart quirks where like bob dylan and bruce springsteen don't have any number one hits they have written songs that were number one hits for other artists mm -hmm. they both have number two hits and then they both sang on we are the world which is a number one hit but as for like the actual like icon like you know the iconic songs the reason that everybody knows those names uh no number one hits it's just it's just kind of how it worked out they got blocked yeah that's just i mean that's just so fascinating and yet you know um like a group we're going to talk about that honest i'm i i kind of stopped being cool as as far as music goes maybe around like 2012 probably sure. um and so i there was actually one song that we'll talk about later that i had never heard until i read the book and then of course i went and listened to it but um it's like and i'd never heard of the artists either and so to think that that could be a number one yet bob dylan isn't or or bruce springsteen isn't that's that's wild to me but you write that there is something romantic and I agree with you about the idea of a number one song that's that's actually really beautifully said and I'd love for you to kind of unpack that for us oh sure yeah I just I I love the idea that at any moment there's like there's one song and that is the song for the moment that's like uh like when uh I guess it was a couple weeks ago now Taylor Swift released uh her new album and the 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 single there wasn't a single because the album all came out at once she didn't release anything ahead of time but uh -huh. the one that had the first video and the one that was like far and away immediately the catchiest one was this song anti-hero and mm -hmm. that's a song where you know you hear it once and you're like okay all right i already know how the chorus goes i know i'm going to be hearing this for a while uh you know my daughter is going to be singing along with it in the car while i drive her to school this morning uh and and i love that you know i love the idea that a song can just come along and kind of sum up a moment it can embed itself in people's memories and it can uh it, even even if the song isn't good and there's been a lot of terrible number one hits there's been a lot of totally forgettable ones there's right. so many where like just it, if if i said the name of the artist or the name of the song to you i would get the blankest look 
uh, you know, but th they're part of the history and they're part of the landscape. And so, it, it, and so when a song that actually does matter and that really connects comes along, when that hits number one, like it means something. I like that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like a it's it's a moment in time, right? It's a time capsule of of a moment in time, and the chart comes out every week, if I'm not mistaken. And so it, it really and some and some songs obviously stay on on as number one for longer than a week, and some are just one week, and then there's a new number one. But when you said "Crazy in Love," for example, me I hadn't I have not heard. Beyonce's crazy in love in years, probably, but immediately I was transported back to 2003, what I was wearing, what I was doing, how old I was, that music video, which we'll talk about the impact of music videos in a moment as well. Um, you know, what the first time I heard that song, what was going on in my life. And so, yeah, it is, it really is such a, just a snapshot, a moment in time. And I, I think that's really cool. And you decided in an idea that quite honestly, I wish I'd had, there's been some songs I wish I'd written, some ideas I wish I'd had, some books I wish I'd written. You decided to review every, God bless you, every single song that had hit number one since the chart's inception in 1958. That is an undertaking. I did. And it was a ridiculous errand. It's a, it's, it's one of those <laughs> ideas. I, I'm glad I had it. It's been a lot of fun, but it looked like I did not know what I was getting myself into. Well, I still feel like, I mean, maybe this is, I, I was born in 1986, so I'm 36 now. So I was, you know, at the peak of my like music, pop culture awareness, probably around the time that you're at right now in 2003, but you're going to get to a point where I think music is just like, you're going to start not like you, you've been from 1958 to 2003. That's, I mean, you got some great stuff in there, but like, I don't know, you're going to get into a, a zone in like 2013, 2016, where I'm like, gosh, I don't even like this music but you're not there yet you're still you're still in my in my gold zone in 2003 but anyway this became the basis for your column and you write i eventually came to discover that virtually every number one hit in hot 100 history has a fascinating story of its own i'm sure that it does because even in the 20 that i read about in your book each one of those is fascinating you back to you i started to see the bigger picture laid out before me so what is that bigger picture well it's the it's a kind of a it's it's this sort of never-ending story it's the way sounds and ideas circulate and speak with each other and uh the the songs are shaped by their times and they also shape their times they mm -hmm. they um th uh, if you know, if a, a number one song comes along in the mid '60s that is a protest song, and 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 that's what you know the most people are listening to that week. What does that say about where America is and and right. where people's feelings are, or, or what does it mean if the you know, like a couple of years ago after he died, the rapper XXX Tentacion had a song called "Sad" that became number one. So mm -hmm. it's like. The, the, here's a 20 year old kid gets shot to death in a robbery and then the way that people express their their feelings about it is by listening to a song called sad that he made a bunch of times like the most on the nose thing but like yeah. who could blame a 13 year old for being like oh i liked this guy he spoke to me now he's dead and i'm sad so i'm going to listen to his song that's called sad wow yeah that's pretty powerful um and we're going to get to all the songs that you cover in, in the book in just a second. But my last question before we do is, 
I also love this piece of your writing from the book. You write, every hit song has a story. All those hits taken together tell a strange, twisty, self-contradictory, epic tale about what America wants in a pop song. This book collects 20 important chapters in that story, but that story hasn't ended yet. Hopefully it never will. So here we are at the book. You chose 20 of these number one hits to include. How on earth, Tom, did you narrow all of those songs down to these 20? How did you determine what made the cut for the book? It, I mean, it was it was a it was a process. It was a fun thing. As soon as the the I my agent and I like came up with the idea for the book, I started you know a song start popping in, ideas start popping in, and so the idea is that these are the songs where they come along and things change. They come along at fulcrum points. Sometimes mm -hmm. the songs cause big changes in music or culture. Sometimes they reflect those changes. But these are the ones where. It's like this song happens and you start to notice a shift. You, things start to change. And sometimes those changes are immediately obvious. Sometimes those changes, um, they they don't kind of come out until years later. You can kind of piece the story together by going backwards. Sometimes the they reflect changes that should have happened a long time ago. Like uh, I have a chapter in here about Ice, Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice, which is the first rap song. That went to number one, which is and disturbing to me. That bothers. It's me. crazy. It's crazy. It's that crazy that it was a song by a white guy. It's crazy that it's a you know not a great song. I, I don't hate the song, but it's it's definitely like not a classic. And then it's also crazy. No, it's that a terrible. Like, it's a terrible hip hop song. It's not that he's white. I, I, it's just it's a bad fine. song. <laughs> it's, it, I, I when I read that, I gave it a that. six out of ten. Any, but so, but also like rap music had existed in the realm of popular music for like a full decade plus before sure. Ice Ice Baby happened. So like there was this lag in uh, not in the popularity of rap, but in the sort of like institutional recognition of that popularity. So and 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 I found that story to be, I mean, more interesting than the story of Vanilla Ice himself, which is also like a really interesting story. It is an interesting story. I'll give him that. But all of these songs, I feel like the common theme is that they're all game changers in their own way. And so I wish we had time to go through all 21 by one, but I'm going to kind of batch them by decade. So we're going to start sure. with the 1960s. So first up, we've got The Twist by Chubby Checker, which first hit number one in September of 1960 and then actually came back again in January of 1962 which wouldn't happen again for another 59 years until December 2020 when a little song we never hear around this time of year called All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey hit number one after it previously hit number one in December 2019 shocking that it didn't hit number one when it actually came out and it was never released as a single there's all these like yeah. rules that billboard has that 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 kind of dictate this stuff and that and so that mariah carey song that streaming changed things like that song yeah. gets streamed a bajillion times a year and so when billboard kind of adjusted their methodology and let different like data sets in it became like more obvious that like, oh no, this song really is like the biggest song in the world for a month every year. And it's just totally yeah, if I'm not back mistaken, for like the foreseeable future. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, that song originally came out in like 1994 or something like that. So it's yeah. interesting that it took that long to hit number one. But 
to your point, you, you're right. Uh, you, you said it. So also from the 1960s, you bring to the book, Will You Love Me Tomorrow by the Shirelles, great song. Another 1960s hit, notable for being the first song by a Black all-girl group to hit number one and written by the dynamic Carol King, I might add, love her. So yep, the, the and, one and we're going to- her part- husband at the time. What's that? And her husband at the time. Yes, Jerry yes, Gottman. yes. Yes, yes, yes. So then the, but the one from the 60s that I want to park on first is, of course, the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand in early 1964. So I want to stop here because these 1960s songs are so rich. And you write of the Beatles, the Beatles' real legacy isn't in all the records that they've sold over the decades. Instead, it's the explosion of excitement and creativity that they brought to popular culture and the mad rush to cash in and to keep up. Nobody can truly compete with the Beatles. And this is me speaking now. That's true. I mean, they, they're the number one on, on the record holder. But back to you. But plenty of people try and those attempts sometimes become their own kinds of explosions. OK, so let's unpack that. Obviously, the, Be- the Beatles have a storied history on the Hot 100, but this is the only Beatles song that makes the book. So tell us why, is it because it's their first? It is, it's because they're first. And and so they're, you know, in a different world, I could have conceivably written about, you know, a bunch of Beatles songs in this book because they kept changing things and they kept kind of moving the goalposts. And I'd say they're sort of a recurring character throughout the book collectively. Um, but, uh, but, that initial rush of excitement when the Beatles first arrived, you know, I wasn't alive then. uh, And so all I can go by is the sort of eyewitness accounts and the, the movies and the, and the sort of just the mind boggling record sales that they racked up at the time. But like, it must've felt like the world exploding to the the kids who were around back then who were there to see it. And, uh, and, and that initial burst of excitement, like that's, what gives the Beatles the momentum that they had for the rest of the decade and mm-hmm. onward afterward, like a Beatles greatest hits collection is the biggest selling album of this century and probably always will be like all four Beatles had multiple number one hits as solo artists, like mm-hmm. this the sort of like big bang that they caused when they arrived and, and the sort of the, the perfect storm of their arrival and its timing and what was happening in the world at that time it uh it it had legs you know it, it still has legs sure. well let's stay in the 1960s for a moment so we've got in the book the supremes where did our love go that was their first number one hit in 1964 and then a bit of a right turn with mr tambourine man by the birds i love the birds in 1965 which you write sent the hot 100 spinning off in bold new directions explain that for us because the birds well, okay. are very different than everything else that I've just said about the 60s heretofore. See, it is, but it isn't. Like, it's so, um, you know, Mr. Tambourine Man was a Bob Dylan song. Uh, mm-hmm. The birds recorded their version of it before Dylan released his. They got like an early copy and, and their manager insisted they didn't want to. Um, and so the birds kind of represented a couple of things. One of them was this sort of like folk music almost underground that that was booming in popularity in the early 60s and that like when the Beatles happened they kind of like latched onto the excitement of it and sort of like did it in their own way translated it in their own way like mm-hmm. the the Birds record label wanted them to be the American Beatles and for a couple of months they kind of were and and Mr. Tambourine their Mr. Tambourine Man was 
an early 60s version of a pop song like the only actual bird who plays on that record is roger mcguinn the front man everybody else is session musicians because hmm. the the record producer didn't think they had the chops to do it themselves like there are all these compromises that had to happen so that the birds could compete in the pop marketplace and the fact that they did led to all sorts of other stuff like it led to bob dylan making rock and roll songs which were his era's version of pop songs and becoming super popular that way like and like there's this great story about dylan hearing the birds version of mr tambourine man and saying wow you could dance to that like it had never occurred to him and mm. uh and and um and so that i i use the birds as this kind of moment where uh pop music and uh sort of ideas of like college kid profundity kind of like intersect and and that ends up causing all these other you know little explosions here and there like all the way you know decades in the future well we close the 1960s in the book with which again there's like there's over a thousand number ones you've just I narrowed it down to 20 really just interesting songs. It's such an interesting mix. But um, we closed the 1960s in the book with 1966's Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. And then we jump all the way to the disco era in the 1970s with Rock, you, Rock Your Baby by George McRae, 1974. And then Dreams by Fleetwood Mac in 1977, which actually a couple of episodes ago on the show, we talked about Stevie Nicks in depth, including Rumors, which is the record that Dreams is on. So I think this I'd rather be reading is slowly morphing into a music podcast at this point. We also had yeah. an episode on the Beach about Boys. About the Beach Boys, yeah. Yep. And so, I, I, and I'm not, and I'm here for it, not mad at it at all. So why choose those two, Rock Your Baby and Dreams, those two very different songs to represent the 1970s in the book? Well, it's the, the, the chapters that I've written, they're not necessarily totally about those songs. Like those songs sure. have to represent sort of shifts and changes. And uh, I, I picked Rock Your Baby, which is like not a song that I feel like that many people know, but um, it's, there's, see, it's it's hard to sort of pinpoint the moment where disco comes in and becomes a mm -hmm. force because disco was an underground phenomenon that crossed over gradually to the mainstream where like, DJs were playing these these deep cuts from from records that uh that were not made with discos in mind. They like the very early disco DJs would just play like whatever up tempo R and B records they could find that would mix well with other ones. And there was this thing happening in like gay clubs and black clubs in gay black clubs in in larger cities and uh, and that sort of like slowly radiated out into the culture from there. I picked Rock Your Baby because it was the first one where the songwriters were like, oh, there's a thing happening here. We should maybe try to write a song like that. So it wasn't mm -hmm. a song that already existed that DJs discovered. It was like a song made with clubs in mind, with DJs in mind. And it doesn't even sound that much like a disco song in the way, like, the way that we think of like Staying Alive or I Feel Love or, or, mm -hmm. or one of these like obvious songs would. It's It's more like, you know, it, it's it's got a mechanized beat, and it's a, it's it's basically a soul song. It's a guy, you know, doing his best to sing like Al Green. But that's like that's <laughs> what disco was at the time, right. and and then it over the next couple of years, it became this whole other phenomenon, this like mega 
merchandised wave that then crashed super hard. Um, and and I I find the whole like you know there's been great books written about disco and and uh, and there it's such a rich history. But I just I wanted to kind of capture the beginning of it, the moment where it where where the the wave really like picked up. Yeah, and and this is why I love this book so much. And don't let me undersell it. It's not just about the songs, right? The songs are the songs are the top, the conversation starter maybe, but it's, it really is about a cultural moment. And, and yeah, that's a perfect example of when, when disco really took off and, you know, it's told through the lens of that story, but the chapters are so rich and so just so, so deep about the music, but the culture. And, and that's why this book is, is as extra compelling. And I, you know, I mean, we could, yeah, sure. I mean, we could sit here and talk for two hours about all the songs and I, and I hope I'm not just breezing through it, but I, I want to hit some of the cultural high points of, of the decade and, and like for the eighties MTV. So, so we move into the eighties in the book, we've got, don't you want me by the human league in 1981, Billy Jean iconic by Michael Jackson, 1983 when doves cry by prince 1984 you give love a bad name bon jovi 1986 so now we've got what you call in the book the mtv effect so we're not just Mm -hmm. hearing songs on the radio as we have heretofore but as of 1981 we're seeing music videos that help songs popularity thanks to the creation of mtv that year so how did mtv impact the hot 100 chart it's funny because the uh mtv never directly figured into the hot 100 like billboard never measured mtv airplay which Mm -hmm. honestly if they had they might have done an even better job like like saying what was popular in the 80s um but so the thing about mtv is that it changed the nature of pop stardom like it changed the job description mm-hmm. like image was always a part of it kind of lifestyle was always a part of it but in the mtv era when uh people had when people had this like visual radio station in their houses uh the the presentation changed and and because the 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 presentation became so much more important the kinds of songs that were getting to number one uh that changed like the the music that was popular changed like i wrote about human league in here to talk about like you know british synth pop and 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 mm-hmm. post-punk and new wave and um and and the ways that like those groups who were already out and all in a lot of cases already doing well in the uk they had like a real leg up in that early mtv era because they were had already been exploring music videos and exploring this kind of like glamorous dramatic presentation and uh and so the these like you know a band like ario speedwagon or journey or whatever like the really big american bands at the time they got completely wrong-footed like they couldn't catch up like if you see those yeah. bands like early music videos they're they're really fun and goofy for the most <laughs> part because they didn't know what they were doing they could not keep up with you know the human league or duran duran or whoever and uh, and then um, and then you get someone like Michael Jackson, who not only could keep up, but he could completely reinvent the form and, oh, yeah. and reinvent popular music in general by like state by first of all like like Michael Jackson, an incredible example of someone who was like, I'm gonna be the biggest pop star in the world. I'm gonna be the Beatles. Here's how I'm gonna do it. And mm-hmm. and he takes 
every sort of like bubbling sound that's in the ether in that moment collapses it all into this one just gleaming blockbuster thing and then presents it to the world as like a like a hollywood musical this, this incredible like visual imagination and and understanding how that will work with the the videos and, and um and uh the two songs that i've got in there back to back um don't you want me and billy jean same uh director for those two videos like that mm -hmm. michael jackson and quincy jones saw the don't you want me video when they were like yeah that guy this is how we're mm -hmm. gonna do this and uh and um and i think prince is a big part of that story too because he used that presentation in a really different way than michael jackson did he kind of like uh he he preyed on all these like social mores and and these uh whatever taboos and and sort of built a mystique for himself with this uh in in ways that even like michael jackson didn't do he became this elusive figure he he made himself more mysterious and not less through through videos mm -hmm. i just i i keep sitting here thinking when we look at the hot 100 we're just seeing a timestamp of culture in that moment and adding the videos in I mean, would you disagree with me that a, that a good video could take an average song and elevate it to the top of the charts? I mean, it's I, I'm I'm very intrigued, and and I get why not, but very intrigued that in, that music videos weren't a part of the methodology, the algorithm, or whatever it is. But um, I mean, the but at the same time, the videos like gave people that it, it they they broke songs, they made people want to hear these songs again and yeah. again. If, yeah. if, the, if the video caught their imagination the right way yeah honestly i mean again to cycle back to crazy and love the first thing i thought of when you said that however many 30 minutes ago to me was the music video and then the song it, it, mm -hmm. and that's interesting i thought of what beyonce was wearing in that video um but moving into the 1990s so these the four you chose for the 90s are so fascinating so vision of love by mariah carey 1990 then the aforementioned Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice. No, not mm -hmm. Vanilla Ice, as if he's listening to the show. But um, in 1990, which it, it just bothers me a little bit that that is the first rap song to top the Hot 100. Makes me a little sick. But anyway, um, it is an iconic. But that's the thing, song. though. It's not. It's not. There's no. It, it's not a. It's not a. It's not based on merit. You know, like it's right. not. It's it's never like. It's never what you want it to be necessarily. There are all these like right. great masterpieces that just aren't in this. If you look at the charts through this weird or it, pop history through this weird little keyhole, there's all this stuff that's not going to be in there. It's just mm -hmm. the stuff that happened to bubble to the top in its moment. In that moment. Yeah. And then Can't Nobody Hold Me Down. Love that song Puff Daddy 1997. And then rounding out the decade, probably one of the most iconic songs of the decade, Baby One More Time by Britney Spears. 1999. So I want to park on baby one more time for a moment. Mm -hmm. You write that it stands as a myth making moment, an introduction to a whole new kind of assembly line efficiency. We're still living in its aftermath. I would love for you to explain what you mean by assembly line efficiency. Well, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the guy who wrote that song, uh, Max mm -hmm. Martin, who Max is Martin. still mm -hmm. making number one songs now. He now has uh, written or co-written uh, more number one hits than anyone else who wasn't a Beatle. Yes. He's, he's in the, he's like, I think he's, he's in like the high twenties. I want to say he's like one behind John Lennon. Wow. Um, and then, and then, you know, 
Lennon and McCartney gave each other credit on like their own songs. So if you actually parse out like who wrote these songs, Max Martin probably beats both of them by now. Mm-hmm. He's um, like he's an iconic pop. Yeah, song. no, it's crazy. He's a guy who stayed behind the scenes. This like weird Swedish guy who like used to be <laughs> a like a hair metal singer, and and he just like developed this sort of like mathematical model for like what a pop song is and right. what it should do. And that model, it, you know, there's something cynical about about the about thinking about it, like the way like oh this guy, he doesn't lyrics don't really matter to him he just figures out a way to hit you over the head with a melody and he's like figured out this methodology that like works throughout eras and 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 can kind of like adjust to fit like a changing climate um and so he can have a number one song with britney spears with like the weekend with Katy perry yeah all these different all people not mm-hmm. in backstreet boys never got to number one it was really? one of those weird quirks. Yeah. See, Insect that's what I'm Backstreet talking did. about. It's interesting. Never? No, not once. Wow. That's so interesting. And it's so weird. Yeah, that is weird. Um, my gosh. Okay. That, sorry, I just blew my mind a minute. The, um, Max Martin, there is, and I cannot remember the name of it, but there is a great documentary about him on that I saw on Netflix. This was years ago. Um, I and I can't call it, but he is just such an interesting person. And yeah, he's just like this really nondescript Swedish guy that just churns out hit after hit after hit. And it's it's just incredibly fascinating. So, okay, the 2000s to present day. Um, this is now this takes me to college. Buy You a Drink by T-Pain, 2007, Auto-Tune mm-hmm. and All. Crank That by Soldier Boy, also 2007. This is the song. This is going to show how uncool I've become. Black Beatles, and I'm going to possibly mispronounce this, Ray Sremmerd. Ray Sremmerd, yeah, you got it. Okay, cool. In, 2000, in 2016, and then finally, Dynamite by BTS in 2020. So you use this era to write about, especially the latter two songs, to write about internet-based fan fan armies, writing, mm-hmm. apparently the Hot 100 is no longer a historical record of the music that dominates pop culture at any particular moment. Instead, the pop charts look more and more like a battlefield for competing fan armies. A change like that forces a reconsideration of the entire idea of pop stardom. BTS have taken the existing model and they've blown it up like dynamite no pun intended although i'm sure the pun was intended it might be (laughs) it might be years before we know what's next so what uh, logically we can figure it out but what is a fan army and what is a fan army's effect on the hot 100 sure well so fan armies have existed for as long as pop music you know or or, you know like frank sinatra had a fan army you know like he had the bobby Mm -hmm. saucers um but in 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 our era right now, fan armies are extremely online. They are organized and they have goals. And one of those goals is to like there's people who are very 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 invested in making sure that their favorite artist has as many number one hits as possible, stays at number one for as long as possible. Like it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a weird thing to think about where like you know, I certainly have my favorite musicians and I want to see them do well and I hope they're they're comfortable or whatever. But it's like, when you think about it in a statistical, through a statistical lens, um, you, it becomes like almost like sports, except if you're a fan of sports, you can't affect the outcome. 
right. and in pop music you can like, you so can buy a bunch of copies of a, of a song and mm -hmm. uh, and help ma make sure that your your favorite can sort of maintain a hold on at number one and um it's it's an interesting thing because pop music is now so like so completely atomized like it's it's um everybody has their own individual tastes and they don't necessarily line up with each other it's it's not impossible but it's much much more difficult for a song to become super culturally resonant to the point where like your grandma knows all the words or or yeah. like the person who sits next to you at work knows all the words like it does happen it happened with like old town road um and i right. sometimes i wish i i had made that a chapter in the book but it, it be it's it's more about these artists now who become their own kind of like cultural bellwethers and the people who identify deeply with those artists and who it, it's almost like the the pop charts have become self-conscious in a way because the fan like there's always been pop chart manipulation and it used to be the record labels doing it or mm -hmm. the radio stations uh, and now it is the fans themselves who are kind of like gaming the system and uh and billboard's like constantly tweaking its uh its formula of figuring these charts out to kind of stay ahead of that as much as they can mm -hmm. like they they put in a rule last year where you couldn't just keep buying different versions of the same single again and again <laughs> every week which uh -huh. was specifically one of the things that bts fans had been doing and that's how bts like held the number one spot for like the entire summer last year mm -hmm. imagine being that beloved right like that i mean I love it. That's just it must it must be so like it's I can't imagine what it does to your head. No, that's um, yeah. The the uh, it's my show, so I can cuss on the show if I want. That the mind fuck of that, you know. So that's just mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. that's wild. But I'm I'm just curious, how many one hit wonders are there? Not in the book, but just roughly in on. I mean, I don't need a number or anything, but how many one hit wonders are there roughly on on the Hot 100? Like, how many out of ten would you say are a one hit wonder? Oh, probably three or four. It's funny, like the people who we think of as one hit wonders, a lot of the time they have multiple hits, like like Vanilla Ice had a follow up hit that got into the top 10 that nobody thinks about now. because They just think about him in the one song. Yeah. It's like the, the definition of one hit wonder itself is, is a sort of a fungible thing. But there's definitely there's tons and tons of people who just like popped in and then popped out. That's so interesting. Well, Tom, I really enjoyed this book and, and not just thinking about the various hits over the decades, which was fun to go back and read more about the songs and about the artists, but the broader implication of what the Hot 100 chart means to culture. So my last question for you, I've got to ask, and this might be an impossible question, of the 20 that are chosen for the book, do you have a favorite of those? Oh, it just speaks to you. Man. Um not really i've like i've, I've <laughs> i'm trying to run these songs into the ground i've like played them over and over again i think okay i think the best song in the book maybe the one i liked writing about the most and the one that kind of like is like wow i can't believe that was a thing uh, when doves cry is like a pretty incredible achievement from like every conceivable angle yeah like the fact that that's that's one guy playing all the instruments himself recording himself late at night just being like oh my movie needs a song for a montage let me come up with this like all-time <laughs> classic that's gonna d define an entire like period of pop music like it, i love that 
That's pretty, I mean, that's pretty iconic. Oh, that's, the book is so good. The number one's 20 chart-topping hits that reveal the history of pop music is out November 15th. Tom, thank you so much for being here today. This was a pleasure. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was a blast. Such a fun conversation that I probably could have honestly had for another two hours. Thank you so much, Tom, for being on the show today. We are closing season five next week with an incredibly powerful episode you won't want to miss. Stay tuned and thank you as ever for being here with me today. Thank you.